This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Virginia Zimmerman discusses her middle grade debut novel, The Rosemary Spell. Then PW's associate editor for children's books, Natasha Gilmore, explores representations of Native Americans in children's books. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So we've uh, got a, a new number one over in hardcover fiction, ah. and uh, it's James Patterson. Okay. We're all surprised. Yeah, but, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also got a couple of books that I wanted to mention. Uh, since we were off last week, we didn't get a yeah. chance to talk about last week's bestsellers, but conveniently, many of them are still hanging around on the list this week. At number two, uh, which was last week's number two, is Tricky 22 by Janet Ivanovich. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, no surprise, the 22nd Stephanie Plum novel and uh it's just another stephanie plum novel uh for fans of these uh you know, she's a, a bounty hunter and uh you know got a kind of exciting life and they're very humorous uh sort of mystery novels definitely going to appeal to the fans of the series and tricky 22 sounds like that's the uh 22nd in the Stephanie Plum. <laughs> it, it is, <laughs> yeah. in fact. Um, and uh, it, it just makes it very easy to put them in order on right, your shelf. Right, right. You, know, you yeah. don't have to wonder. Yeah. Um, and number three was last week's number one, which is David Baldacci's The Guilty. This is the fourth book in the Will Roby series. Um, he's a, an assassin working for the government because uh, we all know our government has so many of those. Right. And um, he's uh, these are various thrillers exploring his life uh, on the the dark side of things. Um, So uh, that's at number three this week. And uh, down at uh, number seven is All Dressed in White by Mary Higgins Clark. This is an under suspicion novel and it's co-written with Alifair Burke, uh, the sequel to The Cinderella Murder. And we called it Scintillating and uh, it's about a runaway bride who vanishes the day before her wedding in Palm Beach, but she's not the typical runaway in that no one knows what happened to her. She really just disappeared. And we say that Clark and Burke's collaboration is as smooth as rum and coke with just enough kick to make the reader thirsty for another. That's at number seven. Um, down at number 11 is last week's number seven, The Pharaoh's Secret by Clive Cussler. This is the 13th in the Numa Files series, um, underwater thrillers. I, Kessler has just made this his own, uh, and he's been doing it for a very long time. But if if you want to read underwater thrillers, then you go to Clive Kessler. So you know, these wow. ex- exciting right. divers going after shipwrecks and hidden treasure and so forth. And uh, in this case, it's a the villain is a ruthless power broker who's scheming to build a new Egyptian empire as glorious as those of the pharaohs. 
Uh, so that's uh, down at number 11. At number 12 is The Mistletoe Inn, which is last week's number eight by Richard Paul Evans. Uh, it's the second one in his uh, mistletoe collection of holiday love stories and uh, something a little more heartwarming for those who maybe don't want the books about assassins right. and intrigue. Um, instead, you get uh, this lovely color of kisses in the, the falling snow. Yeah. So. And finally, I just wanted to note one other book that's new on the list this week, but it's not a new book. It's Finders Keepers by Stephen King, which came out in June, um, got a big bump, uh, sold about 3,000 copies this week, up from about 1,000 copies the week before. I'm guessing that that's a Black Friday bump. Uh, it just seems right. like you know, the type of book that someone might go into the store and look at it and think... Well, they probably like Stephen King. Everyone likes Stephen King. And they grab it and they (laughs) buy it. Um, You know, just one of those uh, guaranteed successful gifts. Uh, And uh, we called it a a taut thriller about the thin line separating fandom from fanaticism. So it's a very strong Stephen King style thriller about books, uh, about reading, which, of course, will appeal to a great many people. Yeah, exactly. So no surprise that that got a little bit of a lift from Black Friday. It's, uh, It's interesting to see what jumps up after the the big shopping days. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, uh, nonfiction, uh, one such book, Thing Explainer, Complicated Stuff in Simple Words by Randall Monroe. And this one seems like it could be a pretty wonderful gift book. Here, Monroe explains things like food heating radio boxes or microwaves, tall roads or bridges, and computer buildings data centers. One of the things, bags of stuff inside you sell. So uh, with illustrations and uh, they say drawings in only a thousand most common words to provide simple explanations for some of the most interesting stuff there is. So that's at number two. I love his webcomic XKCD. It's just, it's a great nerdy, nerdy comic. Uh, And uh, he also, he loves to just generally explain things. He has a recurring feature where people ask him questions uh, and math and science questions. Questions like you know, what would happen if you hit a fastball going a million miles an hour? Oh, uh, that's and great. Uh, you know, he he really he digs deep and does his very best to to yeah. figure out how to you know, how to exactly how far the shock wave would right. go when you hit that fastball. Right. Well, and that sold. I mean, that sold thirty four thousand copies wow. the first the first week out. So. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have to dip down a little bit further for anything new on the list. And at number 13, we have Carly Simon's memoir, Boys in the Trees. That's at number 13. And we will have a review of that very soon. That was an embargoed book. And the review, uh, which I have in but isn't posted yet, says this is a very personal book along with bouts of heartache and neuroses. There's a persistent sense of exhilaration and discovery. So, um, and that's Carly Simon and, uh, her book had expected the, the, when the book came out last week, it got picked up in people where Mm. they did ask, uh, who was that song written about? Uh Was it indeed Warren Beatty? And she said, of the three lines, one of the three was Warren Beatty. The other two, I can't tell you. So, <laughs> way to keep the mystery <laughs> right, alive. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, let's see. At number twenty-three is Audacious by uh, Beth Moore. 
Uh, and this is uh, Audacious a Deep Dive. I'm reading the publicity. We don't have a review of this in. Into the message that has compelled Beth Moore to serve women around the globe. She has a ministry, and uh, Beth identifies that missing link by digging through scripture. So as we get closer to the holidays, it's not surprising that we're going to find books, uh, you know, Christian-themed books, such as The Light Between Us, Stories from Heaven, Lessons for the Living by Laura Lynn Jackson. That's at number 27. Uh, this is a story of a woman with an extraordinary psychic gift and a powerful message from the other side that can, uh, this is again, according to publicity, uh, help us live more beautifully in the here and now. And then way down uh, at number 48 uh, is from America's Test Kitchen, which this is one of these um, uh, series of books that almost always hit on the bestseller list really mm-hmm. popular really well done and this is it's kind of a kind of a neat take on it the complete america's test kitchen tv show cookbook 2001 to 2016 subtitle every recipe from the hit tv show with product ratings and a look behind the scenes so um so this is all their this is the the best recipes from their uh from the test kitchen tv show cookbook so all right yeah and um, speaking of the Black Friday bump, I just wanted to note a couple of things yeah. on the children's front. Um, you know, pretty much everything on our top ten overall got a, a big bump this week. But right. uh, notable are that the Elf on the Shelf books are both up 200%. I did not know until reading these statistics that there are now different Elf on the Shelf books for the boy elf and the girl elf. I didn't know that either. Um, so I thought it was just I guess one. elf is a gender neutral term. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so the boy doll sales are up 200 131 percent okay the girl doll sales are up 241 percent 50,000 and 36,000 print run print units mm-hmm. sold respectively so um, I guess a lot of little kids need to brace themselves for creepy big brother elves right. or big sister, <laughs> or elves, big sister elves staring exactly. yeah. down at them from yeah. from the mantle. Yeah. Uh, I will never understand the appeal. And as <laughs> as you noticed, uh, religious books also selling very well, and in particular, Jesus Calling, which is a book that actually came out in 2004 uh, and is still selling like gangbusters. It sold uh, 400, over 450,000 copies this year alone. Um, wow. Is up 400% over last week, um, selling 34,000 print units in one week. So uh, definitely that time of year when people are turning outward for commercialism and then inward to wonder why they just spent all that money and put up with the Black Friday crowds. Right. Yep. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Virginia Zimmerman tells us how she blended Shakespeare and magic in her middle grade debut. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Virginia Zimmerman on the line. Her new book is The Rosemary Spell. Hello, Virginia. So glad you could join us. Hi, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So in our starred review of your book, we say that you blend Shakespeare and magic in the enthralling story of three friends confronted with a mysterious book and a curious spell. So tell us a little bit about this book and this spell. Well, the main characters, Rosemary and Adam, uh, find a very old book in a cupboard in Rosemary's new bedroom. And the cupboard has been locked for a long time. 
And when they finally manage to get it open, they find this old book in there and they spend some time exploring the book, trying to figure out who it belonged to and how old it is. Um, and eventually they find uh, a poem in the book and the poem turns out to be uh, a spell um, and it does something awful and they have to try to figure out how to undo this sort of dark magic that they inadvertently invoked. So uh, so you've got three main characters. Let's talk a little bit about them. But first, let's talk a little bit about Rosie Bennett. Who is she? She's the main character. She's the point of view character. She's 13 years old. Um, she lives with her mom, who's uh, a professor of Shakespearean literature. Um, and her dad moved away from them long ago, and she doesn't have any relationship with him. She's a very bookish person. She's you know, she's friendly and has good social skills, but um, she loves to read and she derives a lot of her identity and her understanding of the world from the books that she she has read and reread uh, over the years. She's a lot like I think I was. I was going to say, so you're an English professor. Her mother is a professor of Shakespeare. It sounds like um, some of this might be a little bit about you. In some ways. I mean, she's, I mean, um, her passion for books and her fierce belief that um, that words matter a lot um, is obviously, uh, you know, something that I share with her and that, you know, I gave her those qualities because I believe in them myself and I recognize them in myself. But um, her voice and the nature of her character is, I think, pretty distinct from me. Um it was a, it was in early drafts i think i was trying to channel some sense of myself as a 13 year old and it wasn't until i realized i should stop doing that and just invent a, a new person um that i really that the book really clicked for me i needed i needed her to be not me so let's talk a little bit about the other two characters who uh rosie interacts with the two main characters in the book well, she's um, part of a, a trio of close friends, um, and so her best friend is, is Adam um, Steiner, and then Adam's older sister, Shelby, um, also Michelle. And Shelby, when during the, the action of the book, Shelby's 16, and Rosie and Adam are, are 13, and Shelby is really moving into a different phase of her life. She has a boyfriend. She's busy with her high school activities, um, and she's still... Um, involved with Rosemary and Adam, but not to the degree that she used to be. In, in the past, the three of them spent a lot of time together going on adventures in, in, their, in the river to an island that's adjacent to their town, um, and also reading. And part of what really bonds Rosemary and Shelby is their love of books. Adam loves books, too, but it's really something that, um, that Shelby and Rosemary share. And Shelby's, I mean, uh, sorry, Rosemary has read, um, a lot of her books have been books that Shelby recommended and that all three of them read together. So that's something that has really um, created a bond between all three of them. And now part of what Rosemary's struggling with when the book begins is that Shelby doesn't really seem to have time um, for her and Adam anymore. So uh, I love this idea of people bonding over books, and it immediately reminds me of groups of friends of mine who are deeply into particular fandoms who get very devoted to it, talk about it a lot. Was that the kind of vibe that you were going for? 
Um, somewhat. I, what I really had in mind, uh, I, I have a great friend who I've grown up with, and, and she and I have very similar taste in books, and she's always uh, a much faster reader than I am, so she's always recommended. She's always finished first and moved on to the next book. Mm-hmm. So she's, she's been my recommender of books throughout you know, since we were in third grade. Um, and still today, and um, that that sense that these books provide a kind of vocabulary and a, a common frame of reference. So not not so much the fan, the really elaborate fan um, cultures that get created, which can be really exciting for people, but more just you know the occasional reference to um, you know to a character or to a situation in a book that becomes a shorthand um, and enables us to communicate kind of on top of a foundation of the books that we've read. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And your novel is full of familiar things for book lovers too. The the aesthetic of the bookshelves and the cozy reading nooks. How did how did those help to build up your story and the setting for it? Well, because books and words are so important to the characters, those spaces are naturally very important to them and are the places that where I think where Rosemary at least feels most confident and comfortable and sure of herself. And so as she's facing, you know, really confusing situations, both um, sort of fantastical ones, but also the real ones of trying to come to terms with her father's absence and her changing friendship with Shelby, um, she draws she draws strength from those places like i one of the um settings that i describe in the first chapter is how she organizes her books in her bedroom and and keeps the ones that she might need in a reading emergency right by her head um and that's that's something that i do and i think a lot of people do and i don't i very rarely turn to those books but just knowing that they're there gives me a sense of um just comfort and and sort of a solidness um, when some, when things sometimes aren't very solid in life, and uh, and so all all of all of those places, not just her bedroom, but the bookstore that they go to, um, the library at the school, those are all places where she can feel much more um, sure of herself and comfortable. So I have to ask, just jumping away for the from the book momentarily, what what are the books that? Um, uh, well, I want to say both you and she keep by their bedside. <laughs> Well, um, we, you know, the book ends with a, a, a list of the books that I've mentioned in throughout the Rosemary Spell, and some of those are books that um, she would keep by her bedside, and that I do. Um, for example, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. It, it was a really foundational text for me, uh, and is one I keep close in hand. And she does too, and and even refers to it in a moment when she's trying to figure something out. Um, and Madeline Lingle's uh, other book that meant a whole lot to me was A Ring of Endless Light, which Rosemary doesn't mention, but she loves it. It's just not in the book. Um, and more recent books, um, I'm a big fan of Rebecca Stead's When You Reach Me, um, mm-hmm. as is Rosemary. Uh, I could go on listing books forever. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to know what constitutes a reading emergency. You know, I, I know that... Um, <laughs> A lot of people keep reference shelves of nonfiction, but I also love the idea of there being reference shelves of fiction that give you some access to something that might not be sort of scientific or factual, but might be more philosophical or might be an mm-hmm. emotion. Yeah, I think it can be both emotional and um 
well, emotional in the sense that there might be books or even just chapters or passages from books that that readers associate with, um, you know, overcoming some kind of problem or with a happy time. And so when you're facing a challenge, turning to those passages can be soothing or comforting in the way that, you know, a stuffed animal might be for some kids or uh, a cup of tea or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also think there's a C.S. Lewis has a, an essay in which he talks about how important books are for um, giving kids the opportunity to face foes. And then when they face foes in the real world, they're ready. Um, and so I quite like the idea of some of the really hard things in books being kind of testing grounds or rehearsal opportunities. So as we, as we read through challenges that characters face or really difficult situations, we gain some insight into how to face the real life challenges and situations that might otherwise catch us off guard. I was uh, rereading through a bunch of my favorite childhood books recently, and I realized that they all feature training montages. That they mm-hmm. and sometimes it's the whole book, but it you know it could be um, you know anything from Taron Wanderer by Lloyd Alexander, where he's right. trying a whole bunch of different careers, which I did as it turned out as an adult, um, or any number of other other books where it's all about learning and and training the mind. And I hadn't right. even known that that was a thing I was really into as a kid, but mm-hmm. apparently I just felt a need to do that through books. And I would argue that that probably gave you a great skill set in being able to do those things as an adult in the real world. Um, and and Karen Wanderer would be on my list too. Yeah, absolutely. So so talking about uh, uh, dealing with adversity or, or complex issues, there's also a, con- a character, Constance, who is suffering from Alzheimer's, but is kind of crucial to the, to the uh, story. Tell us about her. Well, she's, um, I mean, you're right. She's really important. She's the, she's the person who has information that Rosemary and Adam need in order to um, undo the magic that they've invoked. Um, but, of course, because she has Alzheimer's, she, she isn't able to access that information herself. And so um, Rosemary and Adam are very frustrated um, and, and saddened by um, trying to deal with Constance's very fragmented mind Um, and memory and loss of memory is a, is a big theme that runs through the whole book. Um, And Alzheimer's of course is a real world example of, you know, really devastating memory loss that unfortunately a lot of, a lot of us, a lot of readers um, have experience with. Um, And I did base the exchanges with Constance um, on my own experiences dealing with um, my grandmother in particular who suffered from Alzheimer's. Um, and in some ways, the not the whole book, but Constance was an effort to to pay tribute to what it is to lose your memory and then kind of try to offer a, not, a, not a hopeful resolution, but a, a sense that even with memory loss, there can be um, there can be ways to hold on. Tell us a little bit more about the ways memory is important to the story. One thing that you already mentioned was just that the shared experience, the shared memory of having read the same books can bring people together and give them ways to talk to one another. Yeah, and, and that sense of um, having a common foundation that you that you do all remember and that you draw on frequently, and then what happens when that foundation is shaken. Um, so for somebody like Constance, she has no foundation because she doesn't remember most of the time. Um, and what is it 
And I was really interested in that question of what is it like to live without memory? And, and I think people often think that children aren't very interested in memory. They, you know, they think of kids as being really forward-looking. Um, and I think that's, I think that misses something. I think children have a very particular brand of nostalgia, um, which I was trying to capture um, with Rosemary's sense of loss as Shelby moves on. Um, and then the fantastical elements of the book also obviously um, deal with memory loss um, in a really uh, dramatic way. So where does the magic of the spell come from? Is that just, is, is it basically used as a device? Is there some larger magical context that it's tied to? The spell that in the book? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, the magic, well, the idea for the magic in the spell came from the, the story that in Macbeth, Shakespeare used an actual witch's curse, and that is an explanation for why productions of Macbeth are supposedly cursed. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of enchanted by that notion that Shakespeare lived in a time when there were magic spells kicking around that he could stick in his plays. Um, and so I took that and ran with it and imagined that he incorporated a lot of magic into his writing. Um, and so the the poem that they find is a spell that, that Shakespeare wrote or copied into this book. Um, but it connects with the larger themes about books and reading and this belief that words are magic and do things. Um, and I, I do believe that, not in a, you know, crazy, fantastical way, but words matter a lot, and they, they affect change, and they, they change the world, and they change who we are, and that's, you know, that's what a magic spell does. Um, and so that interplay between the fantasy of words that actually perform some magic and the, the notion that all words perform a kind of magic is what I was going for. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Virginia Zimmerman, author of The Rosemary Spell. So this is your first novel. Uh, What inspired you to take this particular career turn, or at least give writing a novel a try? Well, I I teach English literature uh, at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, and I've been teaching uh, young adult literature and children's literature for about 10 years now. Um, and after teaching it for a while, I began to, to recognize that it was a genre that um, felt really important to me in ways that I, I think I had always known but hadn't really acknowledged to myself. Um, and I also started to have some ideas for stories and feel like it was a genre I could tackle. Um, and so it really, I really came to writing um, children's literature from teaching it, um, which is not the way it usually goes. It usually goes the other way. Mm-hmm. 
but I felt, I mean, thinking about Rosemary's Foundation and books, I think I, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, because I have all these great books that I'm constantly thinking about and reading and rereading because I'm teaching them. So uh, when did you start working on it? That's such a hard question. <laughs> uh, it is a, um, you know, kind of a huge um, pronoun that signifies many things. So it, um, the version that that is now been published, I started working on uh, about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it went through many, many iterations um, over a few years before that um, and, and started off as a completely different book with a completely different magic and different characters and really wasn't the same book. But the exercise of working on that um, I think prepared me to to be able to write the the book that finally did become the Rosemary Spell. And so, how did the publication of the book come about? Uh, well, I had um, I had an agent, uh, George Nicholson, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, um, who sent it off to um, Clarion Books to Dinah Stevenson there, and she. Um, liked it and uh, was eager to work with me on it. And we um, went through just a few months of revisions um, and then got, I mean, it was pretty ready to go, I think, when she got her hands on it. Um, So after a long time of, um, you know, rewriting and rewriting again and changing a lot of really fundamental elements of the book, it, it became... From the time that it, I sent it to my agent and he sent it to my editor, uh, the process was really pretty speedy. And how was it that you uh, 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 got to your agent? How did you find your agent? Um, that's a long story, but um, <laughs> I'm just asking I, because this is your your, your uh, you know first. It's really hard for you know uh, for a first book, you know, first time novelist uh, to get published, uh, and often the stepping stone is finding the agent. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's, uh, you know, they're kind of the gatekeepers of the industry these days. Um, I, I had a, um, a different book that I, that was published in Barcelona in Catalan, which I don't speak really. Um, but it was, I'd written it in English and they translated it and I needed an agent to negotiate that contract because it was complicated, me being a foreigner. Um, and I was having a terrible time getting an agent because it was such a weird situation. Nobody would touch it. And I finally decided I needed to go through connections, but I didn't have any connections. Um, so I went to the alumni directory from my college. Uh, I went to Carleton College, which is a small liberal arts college that breeds fierce loyalty. Carleton's wonderful. I almost went there. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it, it's it, just, great... it just seemed like a great place. It is a great place. Um, and I figured surely somebody from Carlton is a literary agent. So I searched on the alumni directory and found George that way um, and emailed him and said, this is my deal. Can you help me? And he was willing to help me with that first book. Um, uh, but then, you know, we, we, we moved on to this newer book in order to find, uh, you know, to, to, to launch my American publishing career. So um, as someone who deals with books as sort of end products, who who teaches them once they're published and out in the world, did the publishing process surprise you or is it pretty much what you expected? 
Um, that's a great question. I, I mean, I, I think, um, honestly, it was pretty much what I expected. I mean, I think people tend to be surprised by how long things take, um, and I, I knew that already. And I think, honestly, I think the thing that surprised me the most is, um, you know, I've been writing for a long time as an academic, and I... And I, and of course, I know that there's a, a tremendous difference between, um, you know, writing an article about a book and writing a book, a novel. Um, but I, I don't think I really appreciated how incredibly helpful a good editor can be. Um, and my editor, Dinah, is just, I mean, she's extraordinarily talented. And the way that she, like, I feel like something is done and polished and lovely. And she, you know, is able to just with a slight tweak, make it so much more lovely um, in ways that I'm not able to see. And so I think the biggest surprise for me was how much I would appreciate um, the labors of a gifted editor. So let's talk a little bit more about your your uh, teaching at Bucknell. You said you teach uh, uh, children's literature as a course. Uh, you started yeah. that about 10 years ago. Um, what what made you start teaching that? Uh, really, it was just because um, the course that I teach meets the requirement for students who are getting secondary certification uh, in the education department. And so I started teaching it really just as a service um, for those students. Um, but it, it's, it's a very popular class. You know, as you would expect, students are excited by the opportunity to read, you know, Harry Potter and The Hunger Games in a college mm-hmm. setting. Sure. Um, and uh, and so I am teaching education majors in the class, but I'm also teaching students from all over the university who, um, you know, are fitting in an elective and then also English majors. So um, it's, a, it's a really great class to teach um, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the student's think that the literature is going to be uncomplicated um, and then they really quickly discover the ways in which there's so much going on mm. um, and that these books are really rich and, and there's so much to talk about and so it's fun to watch them have that realization. And when you mention Harry Potter I guess it, at this point in some ways those are the books that these kids really grew up on. Yeah um, in some ways I'm actually moving out of that generation which is really surprising to me. Wow. Um, Every time I teach the course, there are more students who have never read the Harry Potter books. Wow. Um, which is just, I can't even believe that's the world we live in now. But <laughs> um, I think this semester, out of 25 students, maybe seven or eight had never read the Harry Potter books. Hmm. That's really interesting. So uh, yeah. I guess I don't actually know what the big touchstones are. There hasn't really been another Harry Potter since Harry Potter. No. Uh, more of them are familiar with the Hunger Games. Right. Um, than, than with Harry Potter. I think, actually, the the real issue is that they've seen the movies, and so they then didn't read the books. Got it. And yeah. is is that one of the things you talk about in the class, is adaptations and what, what makes it in and what doesn't? Yeah, um, we do talk about that. And um, one, of the, one of the interesting topics we cover, which we're just talking about today, in fact, is how what a peculiar phenomenon it is that you get this very very sort of brief moment in time when readers are reading certain books without the images from the movie in their mind and then the movie comes out and that that never happens again the the you know whoever they cast as the main character and whatever you know aesthetic they create um 
in developing the world of the book becomes interwoven in the reader's experience. Even the readers who haven't seen the movie versions are usually familiar with the, the images or the actors. Um, and so you, you get this um, kind of complicated interweaving of the film and the book um, that replaces the, the kind of raw experience of the book. And, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but um, it's... I don't, it seems a little sad to me. Yeah, I was thinking be, because that part of uh, when when you when you want to see in your own mind what someone looks like, that as you're reading a book, that has disappeared because suddenly the character that you've seen in the movie replaces that, or is is an easy fill-in. Exactly, I think it's R and Dottie Roy said that um, uh, movies colonize the imagination, mm. um, and, wow. and I've always really liked that. I think that that captures the the problem very nicely. Yeah. So if someone offered to make a movie adaptation of The Rosemary Spell, would you turn them down? I don't know. That's such a hard question. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, in principle, yes, I think I would. Right. But, uh, in practice, you know, I think someone could persuade me that they would do a good job. <laughs> yeah. And um, what what are you working on now outside of your teaching? Are there more stories waiting to be written? Yeah, I've um, just finished a draft um, of a of a novel, which is, um, and you know, being read by people, and hopefully they will like it. Um, and then I'm a, I'm just about to start working on uh, Pelagia's Boats, which is Rosemary's favorite book, um, which I mentioned several times throughout the Rosemary Spell, um, but hadn't haven't actually written. Um, and I'm I'm in very early stages of that. Oh, I love the idea of writing books that start out as as background material, as writing fictional books and making oh, them real. Yeah, yeah. I I felt I wanted her um, I wanted her favorite book to be something that 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 readers wouldn't know. Um, you know that that so that they could kind of imagine it being what they need it to be as they're reading the book. Um, and now, of course, as right. I go on to write it, I'll undo that in a way, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I I. It was important to me that 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 touchstone text for her be something kind of ill-defined, um, and now I'm I'm facing the challenging task of defining it. So that's interesting. What what led you to do that then? To write it or to to write um, put it? In? I mean, no, I understand wanting it to be something uh, maybe uncolonized. To 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 go yeah. back to that earlier metaphor. Um, so it's. Uh, it's interesting that you've now felt strongly enough about it to really pursue writing it. I, I, and the origin of it was a, a sort of fable picture book that I wrote for my children one mm. a few years ago um, and with no intention of ever publishing it. Um, and then one of my kids suggested that it would be a good novel. And it was right around at that time that I needed a book for Rosemary. Um, and so I, I gave her... Um, that novel and but I've been you know since I wrote their sort of root story years ago I've been mulling it over in my mind and trying to figure out how I would tell it's a a kind of complicated story and I and I I'm very committed to middle grade as a genre and Mm -hmm. so I need to figure out how to how to tell it for that audience Um, and I, I think I'm ready now. I think that's part of it. I didn't feel ready before um, to tackle something more complex, and now I, I think I'm there. Well, it sounds like this book has been a very successful set of training wheels, if that's what it's been. And, yeah, we obviously our reviewer loved it, and uh, it seems to be doing very well so far. 
Yeah, I've been very pleased um, at the with the the early reviews and the just the response I've gotten. Very, it's very gratifying to read. You know, some kids on their blogs have had really nice things to say about it, and just knowing that children, you know, my, my target readers are finding it moving and important is really what it's all about. And um, why why is it that particular area, that particular age range of literature? calls to you, middle grade specifically? I think it's a really special genre because the the readers are still in the process of becoming themselves, and books can make a big difference to them. Books certainly make a difference to readers at all ages, but that, you know, 10 to 14 years old, that, that stage in life where you're really, you're kind of trying on different identities and figuring out what things you're going to hold on to um, as you make your way through life. Um, if you can put the right book in a kid's hands at that age, then the book becomes the thing they hold on to. And it's the books that I read at that age that are the ones on that right. shelf by my bedside. Um, and I f- it, it, it feels like the stakes are really high, that you can, you can really matter um, with a middle grade uh, audience. And it's, you know, it's distinct from young adult in that most teenagers are picking books for themselves. Um, and that, that middle grade audience, there's still kind of adult intervention where a teacher or a parent or a librarian will um, kind of be a broker between the book and the child. So I like that idea of also writing for the adults who want to read that kind of literature. Or an older friend, like with Rosie and Shelby. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've been talking with Virginia Zimmerman, and you can find her book, The Rosemary Spell, in stores right now. Maybe get it for a young friend of yours. Virginia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, Natasha Gilmore, talks about how Native Americans are portrayed in books for kids, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is James McClintock. I'm the author of A Naturalist Goes Fishing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW's Associate Editor for Children's Books, Natasha Gilmore, is here to tell us all about Native American representations in children's literature. Hi, Natasha. Hi, thanks for having me. So I guess there there are two questions um, that immediately come to mind about this topic. First of all, how are Native Americans represented? Mm. So what do the representation look like? And second of all, um, how much are they represented? You know, do they are they proportionally represented, given how many Native Americans are alive today? Yeah, um, I would say how they're represented maybe overwhelmingly seems to be not accurately, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that is sort of problematic for a lot of reasons. But I think I think what's more kind of important is that um, a lot of st- representations of, of American Indians in, in children's books are often not by American Indians themselves. Mm-hmm. And so when you have uh, people writing or illustrating groups that they aren't a part of or they don't know intimately or they aren't getting vetted by people who are in those groups, that's disempowering and not always accurate. And I also think um, I think what's most important is that there are a lot of elements to American Indian culture and history that, you know, non-Native people don't have a lot of 
awareness of. And so, you know, sometimes representations that are stereotypical will often draw on things that are of deep religious significance and Mm -hmm. therefore to just kind of, you know, represent in an image something that is incredibly sacred um, is sort of flippant and, and not something that, you know, I think a lot of people should, I don't know, not something that people think about very thoughtfully. (laughs) <laughs> address very thoughtfully right so um, so you did some research for this obviously what what did the research um well so what kind of how the whole thing started was i um i do our uh big children's announcements issue i, I mean i'm not the only one but i uh help edit those pieces and when i was going through the fall listings uh i noticed a few titles all in one season um by american indian authors uh, and that's rare, just kind of because of the the well-known survey um, by the CCBC that yearly reports representation of, of ethnic groups across the board. And um, every year, American Indians are the la- least represented category. Um, and so to see just a few in one season was notable for that reason. So I wondered if, well, maybe this is a trend. Maybe things are turning around. So I started to do some research to see if it was, in fact, something that was changing. And I kind of came out of it realizing that it wasn't necessarily uh, a new trend or that there were going to be a lot more representations than previously there there have been. Mm-hmm. But um, there just happened to be a few books kind of all coming together at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but, you know, it's still, I think, sort of important to sort of talk about this. You know, why are they so underrepresented? Why, when they're represented, it's not often by their own voices, but by others. And so I wanted to kind of talk to some publishers who are putting out new books or who regularly put out books by American uh, Indian authors and illustrators themselves. Um, and then I also spoke with Debbie Reese, who's an, a known uh, blogger and educator um, on the topic. Uh, and she's very influential, too, um, about like getting the word out on mm-hmm. problematic representations. Uh, so, yeah, so talking to all of them, it just sort of... Uh, kind of came out that, you know, there aren't a whole lot of manuscripts crossing editors' desks, and so that might be kind of a problem, you know, like or the pipeline problem, as they say, mm-hmm. that, you know, there just aren't a lot of books kind of coming through to, to publish. Um, and the people I spoke with, you know, didn't really have an answer for why that was, um, but I think, you know, after talking to them, it sounds like the people who are, are um, you know, getting some manuscripts are kind of doing a lot of active work to seek these things out and they you know it really takes like a little bit more effort than just you know accepting um, submissions in the traditional way and when Uh, when you talk about a pipeline you have to actually build the pipe and you have to make sure that there's like a a lake at the other end of it (laughs) exactly and that it's going into the pipe yeah yeah no it's uh it's it's more than just passively turning on your faucet right and expecting that someone else has built all the infrastructure for you yeah and i think you know I I know that editors are inundated with lots of manuscripts. And so, you know, it's easy for them to kind of remain, you know, like, you know, at their desk and just look at what they're given. But um, to, I think, represent this group, which is largely underrepresented, and when they are represented, they're not represented very accurately. I think that that needs to change not only for the group to have their own mirror, but for the rest of us to have a window to a group that we don't understand very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's... It, you know, you know, publishers, they make, they're not in it for the money. They're doing something to like, you know, kind of help us all sort of educate ourselves. And they're doing a lot of work for their own passionate reasons. And so I think that they kind of, it would be great if they could do the the right thing and kind of do extra, you know, make the extra effort to get these books out there because I think it's important for everybody. 
So you said you, you talked to some of the publishers who are working in this area. Mm-hmm. What kind of things did they tell you about um, where their success is coming from mm-hmm. and you know what they've done to build that pipeline? Yeah, I think I talked to a lot of different publishers, you know, large and small. It does seem, by and large, that the smaller houses are kind of um, doing more work where they're focusing on, on books by American Indian authors. Um, but even at the larger houses, um, you know, like I spoke with, uh, an editor, Cheryl Klein at Scholastic, and she um, uh, she she was really interesting to speak with. She when she was starting out as an editor, she was on list a uh, list serve that was really popular with um, the children's lit community. And Debbie Reese was also very vocal on that before she had started her blog. That was kind of where the conversation was happening. And mm-hmm. so Cheryl was um, you know really interested to hear I think from Debbie and, and reached out to her specifically and said I would like to publish more American Indians you know if you know of any authors send them my way so she went uh, out of her way to kind of ask and um, and that uh, actually did lead to a book and a book deal uh, by Eric Gansworth and um, so I think that was one thing where you know she had a vested interest she knew it was something that needed to be done and she did it um, and then there's also um, I had a really great conversations with um two editors at Abrams, um, and Abrams, you know, they're, they've got kind of smaller lists, but they, um, they have a lot of sort of vested interest in, in representing American stories in general, and they have um, three books coming out this fall um, by American Indian authors and, and illustrators, and that to me was, you know, that, that seemed kind of big, and I was like, well, why is this happening? This is, mm-hmm. And it just happened that the books were actually in the works for a long time, but they all just kind of came together right. for this season. Um, but yeah, that started out... Um, when I spoke to, to one of the editors, uh, Tamar Brazis, she mentioned that uh, the publisher um, was actually like particularly interested in, and was speaking personally with uh, Robbie Robertson, uh, the musician from the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, through their conversation, kind of came up with this idea to, to uh, publish this one book, which is um, a version of the Hiawatha story that a lot of people you know, learn from Longfellow, but Longfellow's story is not accurate. Mm-hmm. And so... Robertson grew up, um, some, you know, in, in part on a reservation, and so he grew up hearing a very different version, and he wanted to have that story out there. Oh wow! Um, so yeah, so that that's kind of how that one book came came up in particular. And then um, Howard Reeves, the other editor I spoke with, he also just per- out of I think personal interest, and he mentioned in our interview that um, it really kind of requires some sort of personal interest that motivates editors to kind of do the work. But he had read a lot of nonfiction just personally about um, American Indian history, and so. He knew a lot about it, and he was really interested in getting those stories represented. And he discovered, through the slush pile, actually, um, an illustrator called S.D. Nelson, um, who, like, really, in a sort of fascinating way, he um, his art is uh, made on pages from these old ledgers that were from the forts uh, around um, uh, the boarding schools that um, American Indians were... Um, mm-hmm. sent to uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And so it kind of has this like extra layer of history to it that's really sort of fascinating and kind of something that a lot of people don't know, like that piece of the history. Right. Um, and so, and uh, yeah, so he um, published his first book and, and Abrams has actually done quite a few books from S.D. Nelson. Right. So, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so that, um, some people are kind of seeking them out themselves. And then also a smaller publisher, Wisdom Tales, um, they do a lot of local outreach, and um, they support a lot of American Indian charities um, and organizations. And I think 
um, that kind of helps sort of get the word out. And then there's also Lee and Lowe, which is a really known um, right. multicultural mm-hmm. publisher. They have a, a, an award to discover voices by underrepresented groups. And, and, um, and I think that kind of helps the pipeline, possibly, hopefully. <laughs> so there are a lot of different steps that publishers could take if they wanted to help fix this problem. Yeah, I think it starts with education, you know, like there's a lot that we don't know that we're not taught in our schools about um, issues of importance to American Indians. Um, I think a lot of people are like, I thought they were all wiped out by smallpox. Right, you know, like a lot yeah. of people have no idea that there still are natives mm-hmm. uh, who are, you know, like alive today. Right. Or to think about the fact that there are 566 federally recognized tribes. Those are very different mm-hmm. people, too. They're not right. one group. They're not an ethnic group. They're right. totally different like tribes. Um, and so to kind of overlook that, too, because of, of the way we're, we teach our, you know, our own history, um, I think that sort of oversimplifies things, too, and can create some sort of damaging um, representation, right. too. So uh, you've, you've named a couple of books that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Have, you been, have you seen any of these? Meaning, are you able to comment on what the storyline might be? It oh, might yeah. be a little bit different from what we might think? Um, I don't think in these ones um, that the storyline is, is hugely different from what we might think. They're, um, I think they're like... Some of the ones that I've looked at and I talked about in these books are really beautiful, really interesting books. And I think, um, you know, maybe if if certain people who don't know a lot about Native culture went into them, um, they might be surprised, especially, I think, by the Hiawatha story. Because, you know, if you, if you know Longfellow's version, it's going to be pretty different. But I think they're just, they're all really um, passionately made books. And I think that comes through when you're mm. reading them. Um yeah, especially, like, I think I spent a little bit more time with the Abrams books, I'll be honest, um, because that was kind of what inspired the story to begin with, um, just that they had three coming out. And, um, yeah, all of them are just really, like, they're beautifully done, and they're just really engrossing, and you kind of don't really think about, you know, like, I don't know, I guess maybe other representations of American Indians who just are swept up in really, really fascinating stories that are really well mm-hmm. told. Um, so I think, yeah, um I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for those of our listeners who aren't working in publishing but are readers, mm-hmm. um, is there something they can do to um, get those books into bookstores and let publishers and bookstores know that there's a demand for them? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know like what specifically they could do to, to demonstrate a demand rather than other than just buying them. That mm-hmm. always helps, you know. That's um, that sends a message. Um, and maybe requesting them and making sure that they're getting into, um, you know, libraries too, so that kids can get a hold of them and sharing them however they can. Um, and I think too, reading Debbie Reese's blog is a really great place to start. She's got an amazing resource there that she just, I mean, it's all free. It's on the internet and she's got amazing book lists and really great and thoughtful reviews that are very incisive. And so I think that's a good place to start to find good books. And once you've found those books, yeah, putting putting your dollars where your mouth is yeah. is a good way to yeah. absolutely keep the, the process going or ask, <laughs> asking your local library too definitely yeah you know. yeah um yeah and it's important i think to know that books about uh, american indians native americans are not just for them but are for everyone definitely and i think yeah just going to what i said earlier i think because we know so little and the way that we're taught um history is so i mean just overly simplified uh i feel like it's almost as important for you know non-natives to understand it as it is for native american kids to have representations Mm. that are not problematic i think 
there's so much that we don't know and it's i think it's really interesting it's a part of our history too in a way you know we're sharing this geography with people that we don't know anything about and that just seems strange to me so i think yeah i think it would be just as helpful and interesting for us to kind of know about different people Right. You know, why not? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Definitely. Well, Natasha, thank you so much yeah, for coming to tell us, and especially um, coming right on the heels of Thanksgiving. This is obviously <laughs> very, very timely. So um, I, yeah. I definitely hope that your article gets a little bit of traction. Okay. I hope people read it and get something out of it. Thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, who's the author of The Food Lab and the Serious Eats blog. I'm so excited about this. We're also going to have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.com. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 